You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. As we come to Exodus 2 this morning, uh, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Our Lord, as we come to your word that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might uh, be able to see your work, uh, not just in Exodus, but in our midst as well. And uh, Lord, that we might learn more of you and that we might throw ourselves more upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, you'll remember from last week, well, maybe a lot of you won't, uh, but the message of the book of Exodus is the mighty acts of God by which he delivers his people from Egypt to a promised land. But it's more than that, uh, because it tells the story of redemption. It's, it's a picture book of God's gospel plan for his people. So it's not just about taking the Israelites and delivering them, delivering them from the bondage of slavery out of Egypt into the promised land. It's also the story of Jesus delivering us out of a much worse bondage than even that of Egypt into his eternal kingdom. But what's so great about Exodus is that it's God's great picture book in Scripture. It's vivid in its imagery of God's redemptive plan for us. So we need to make sure that we know that Exodus is not the story of Moses, but the story of God, namely God's plan for his people. Exodus is not written for us to know Moses better, but to know God better which is a big change from Charlton Heston, right? Because if you watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, what is it about? Moses, right? It's about Moses. But Exodus is actually about God. And it's written so that we might know God better. But along the way, we do get to know this man, Moses. But we learn something of God's character throughout, and Exodus 2 is no exception. So what do we learn of God's character here in Exodus 2 as we look at it? Well, the first thing that we see is God's perfect control. We saw last week in Exodus 1, when Pharaoh sought to bring the Israelites into deeper and deep, deeper bondage. Right? That was his goal. So the first thing he saw, he forgot Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. He was threatened by the number of Israelites who were in Egypt. And so what he decided in the first instance was, does anybody remember? What was his first plan with the Israelites? The first thing he did to them. Slavery made their life hard. And then the second was a two-pronged approach. The first was to tell the midwives to kill the oldest uh, male child. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, if it's a kill the sons, but spare the daughters. Uh, But then uh, when that didn't work, uh, they said, every son that is born to the Hebrews you have to throw into the Nile. So he wanted to be able to see the babies in the water. He wanted to know that the plan was working. When it was just up to the midwives, it was done in secret, and it didn't seem like it was working. So he wanted to know not only uh, was um, the plan working, but that people were actually doing what he told them to do. And the people of the Israelites in Egypt did Uh, throw their babies into the Nile. And so here we are uh, in Exodus 2, uh, and 
in spite of the fact, let's go back to Exodus 1, in spite of the fact that this was Pharaoh's plan, uh, we see in Exodus 1 how God begins to take the plans and schemes of Pharaoh and to appropriate them for his own purposes. So in the case of tossing uh, the children into the Nile, uh, we see God's control manifested, not just in the life of his people, but also in the life of individuals. Moses. And that's true of us too. Now, this is a very hard thing, and I don't think we have a lot of time to, um, to talk about it, but it is worth us spending a second on it, uh, if not every waking hour of our days. But the question that I ask myself and so many others when you're reading through Exodus 1 and 2, why didn't God just destroy Pharaoh? Why didn't he just wipe him out? Because from a distance, we can sort of listen to the story, and it's just a story to us. But if you really begin to think about what Pharaoh was doing with these babies floating in the Nile, it's horrendous. It's horrific. It's terrible. And we even hear that the Israelites later on in chapter 2, that they cry out to God. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery had come up from, came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew so it's not that, that God is shrugging it off. It's not that God is, is distancing, distancing himself from it, but God knows. But that's not a great comfort to many of us. Where is God in the midst of our pain? Where was God when my loved one died? Where was God when I was abused? Where was God when I lived through that tragedy? Now, intellectually, I think that we can all assent and say, God is in the midst of all of that as hard as it is to believe. And uh, when Elie Wiesel was in the concentration camp at Auschwitz, uh, they, uh, a little boy, um, Doug, you, you would know the story. I think he was playing the harmonica or something like that. He was doing something. And uh, the concentration camp uh, decided to hang this little boy in front of the entire camp. And while Wiesel was standing there, uh, he heard uh, behind him um, a conversation where someone says, where is God? Where is God as they watch this little boy hang? And a voice said, God's right there. God's right there. But it has to be more than just sentimentality, right? It, it can't just be, well, well God, God is there. So this is a very real story. And in spite of the fact that we know that God is going to work out his plans and purposes for the good of his people and for his glory, what about all the babies who got tossed in the Nile? I realize that I may not be helping you at all uh, grapple through this, but I want you to know that this is a struggle that many Christians have. Some people might say, well, it's the problem of evil, but I would say it's the problem with life. And we all struggle with it. And it's no different here that the people are crying out to God, where are you? When are you going to deliver us? But what we see is that God watches from his throne in heaven and begins to employ Pharaoh's schemes for his own purposes. 
which is a much more remarkable thing than simply blotting out Pharaoh. The means by which he, this means that God shapes the faith of his people by these adversities. Because when you are in a position that is just marked and marred by so much tragedy and so much desperation, that the only one that you can turn to is who? God. He's the only one. And he's not one who's unacquainted with grief. So while sons are being tossed into the Nile, God knows what it's like to lose a son. In, in a more uh, cosmic and earth-shattering way than even the pain that, that we experience even in the midst of our lives. And you see that as Moses' parents cast him upon the water. What must it have felt like? Because we read that, um, that um, this, is, this, is a, this is sad, but I'm, so I'm going to read it. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. What must it have felt like to build your own child's coffin? And to know that every day that you have with that child over three months may be the last one. You know, is, is tomorrow going to be the day where I'm not going to be able to hide him anymore? Or the next day, or the next day? And then probably going a little bit too far. Three months is probably beyond what she should have done. And then she put together this coffin and placed Moses in it and cast him into the reeds. Now, where is God in all of this? Well, you can see God at work immediately. Because when Moses is placed into the reeds, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Well, there is a wise sister. A sister who is watching out for her little brother. She's taking advantage of the moment. She not only walks through the door that God opens, she anticipates it. Because later on, what are we going to see? We're going to see her in the right place at the right time when Pharaoh's daughter draws the baby out. And she's the one putting suggestions in the mind of Pharaoh's daughter. She's not only just sitting around waiting for God to open up a door, she knows he's going to open up one. And when he does, she's not going to miss out. Where most of us are hesitant even to walk through it. If we're not at the point where we actually don't think that God will even open up a door in our lives. We think that that's that, and Pharaoh gets the last word. But this sister, we don't know how old she is, says, uh, but we, she, I, she's, it, there's every indication that she's a younger uh, girl, not just from the Hebrew, but also the fact that she's interacting with Pharaoh's daughter in this way. And uh, when she says, do you want a woman to nurse the child for you? She is not eligible, right? She's the one that has to go and find 
uh, the woman. And who's the woman that she finds? Moses' mother. So there is this baby laid in the reeds, and the, the baby goes down, and then what happens? She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. So this is when the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And so God orchestrated that at that point in time, you're going to need a bath. And so she goes down to the Nile. And then while she's in the Nile, Moses comes floating by. And God says to Moses, cry. And then Moses cries and they fetch this basket out. And the baby, it says she took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then Moses' sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, who's standing right there, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes, go. And so she went and she found the very mother of the child. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And it's as if God is intervening, continues to intervene and, and prompts Pharaoh's daughter to say, oh, and I'll pay for it. And then when the time came for Moses to return to the household of Pharaoh, being brought into the only environment in Egypt in which Moses would be educated and reared in a way that would prepare him for the great leadership that he would take on over the entire nation of Israel. God is in the details. If you think that God is someone who just winds up the earth and leaves it alone... How do you explain Exodus 2? And as hard as it is for us to believe it, God works in our lives in the same way, even though we can't see it at the time. Because I think that if I had even been standing at a distance and been the sister and saw Moses floating up into Pharaoh's, I would have thought, that's almost worse than death. To have the very man that wants to kill him as his adopted grandfather? That, that's worse. And yet that's actually where God is working. It's God's alien work. And the daughter of Pharaoh not only gives permission for his mother to care for Moses, but actually commands her. It's a command, so it's not that she's doing Moses' mother a favor. And so if anybody says, well, well why do you have that child? You're not allowed to have Pharaoh's daughter commanded me. I'm operating under royal orders. Now, it's been rightly said, and, and this is just a personal moment for me, uh, that Moses' mo Moses's mother was one of, is, uh, one of the closest biblical figures to preachers because she's being paid to do the thing that is closest to her heart. She's being paid to do the thing that is closest to her heart, and that is to raise her son. Well, this is Moses' family learning to trust in the Lord for everything. Everything. Because when they cast him upon the water, that's all they had. That's all they had was to trust in the Lord. So we see in the first instance here in Exodus 2 about the character of God, God's perfect control. He controls everything. But secondly, God's perfect faithfulness. Why would God do all of this? Why would God do all of this? Why would God insert himself 
into the situation and use it for the redemption of his people. Well, I read it earlier. Verse 24 and 5. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God does it because God has made a covenant with his people. He doesn't forget his promises. And this would be a theme that would occur over and over again. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Moses says, Go and gather the elders to, or the Lord says to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Right? This is the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what was the covenant in uh, chapter 6, the first nine verses, if you want to look at that, reiterates the same thing. But what, what was the covenant that he made uh, in the first instance with Abraham? Does anybody remember? This is back in Genesis. That he would make him a father of a great nation with numerous, num- uh, more than the sand in the, in the desert and the scar- stars in the sky. This great nation. He makes a covenant with Abraham and he makes a covenant with this people. Secondly, he makes a covenant about the land, that he would give them a good land flowing with the grace of God. But where are the Israelites now? They're far from the land that God gave Abraham. And there aren't that many descendants. I mean, think about it. When by the time they get to the promised land, they're this great multitude and they continue to grow here. But remember, when when the Israelites came into um, when they came into Egypt because of Joseph. There were I mean, I think the math, Doug, is less than 100. Or I don't remember what it is. Somebody know somebody. 70, 70. There you go. There's 70. And so you remember that I'm going to give you a land and that your, and your, your, your population is going to be great. And you've got 70 and you're thinking, man, how is this possible? But God remembered his covenant. And by the time they do get to the promised land, they are a great multitude. So that when they finally roll up on Jericho on the other side of the River Jordan where it empties into the Dead Sea, remember everyone in Jericho looks out and says, oh no. That's a lot of people. God simply cannot give up on us. He never ceases to care with a love that is deeper than anything that we could fathom. The pain and the anguish of his people is God's pain and anguish. So God's perfect control, God's perfect faithfulness, and also God's perfect training. God is concerned with his people because he has a purpose. And his usual means is his people. God uses us to accomplish his plans. But did you ever stop and think about that? Now, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, a lot of people will say God has no hands or feet other than us. Well, that's not true. Uh, God is not somehow wholly dependent upon us so that if we don't do what God wants us to do, he says, oh no, what am I going to do now? You know, Andrew didn't do this. 
I'm at a complete loss. Now, of course, uh, he's uh, omnipotent and omniscient in all of his doings. But I think that you can understand uh, that God can make a donkey talk. He can make rocks cry out. He can divide the sea. He can walk on water. He's not, it's not that, that we allow God to do things by our actions. God allows us to do what he wills in, in, court, in order to accomplish his greater purposes. And yet, God in his mercy uses us, jars of clay, in order to do his work. And we see people, some people stand out a little bit more than others, where you will say they're, going, they're doing God's work and God is using them in a mighty way. Who would be some of those people from history or even maybe in your own experience that you would say that person is doing God's work? Billy Graham. Mother Tr- Those are the two I was thinking of, Rebecca Goodwins. But other than that, nobody else is. Let's face it. All right. Because the thing about it, nobody in the room is going to say, well, me. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that includes you too. You're part of God's plan for this world. And he's going to use you. Now, maybe not in the terrific way that we see him using Moses. uh, But nonetheless, I think that our testimony, and I say this time and time again, most of our testimonies are not that we had some, um, that we were led to the Lord by a Billy Graham. I mean, is anyone actually, did anyone ever go and work with Mother Teresa? In Calcutta, did anyone? Right, so Mother Teresa is not a part of your testimony. They might be inspirational individuals, she and Billy Graham, and, and people whose lives that we might seek to emulate. But you know what? They weren't seeking to emulate anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So our focus is actually the same as Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, but your testimony is probably a faithful Sunday school teacher when you were little a faithful mother, a faithful father. It may, may be a faithful pastor who, who's, who has only preached to small groups of people. Charles Spurgeon, when he was beginning to feel God nip at his heels, the great preacher of the night, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, probably, uh, he decided he was going to go to church one morning and the weather was so bad with the snow and the sleet and it was just so miserable that he decided instead of going where he had intended, he ducked into this little Methodist church and he sat in there and it was just the preacher and himself and I think maybe one other guy. And as Spurgeon sat there in the back pew, this lay Methodist preacher, Spurgeon doesn't know his name, simply looked at Spurgeon in the back of the chapel and said, young man, you look miserable. Spurgeon said, yeah, I am. And Spurgeon left a changed man that day. Has no idea who that man is, what his name is. But I guarantee you when Spurgeon got to heaven, he was going to look for him. It was one of the first people that his glorified arms were going to wrap around their glorified necks. And that's our testimony too, that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so never underestimate uh, how God will work in your life. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful illustration of this in The Great Divorce, where um, there's a woman who comes riding down the streets of gold in a chariot. And she's this regal, majestic-looking woman, beautiful and uh, 
children are dancing around the chariot and following her, and, and people are hailing her and waving to her. And uh, the, the, the main character says to his angelic gods, I think I know who that is. That's Mary. And the angel says, no, that's Sarah Smith from Gilder's Green. Like, who? Yeah, nobody. And yet God used her in a powerful way to affect the lives of people that she encountered, that there in heaven she's hailed as a great superhero of, of the faith. And so that's how God uses us. He uses us to accomplish his plans. And so uh, what happens? When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left? This is a funny moment, by the way, if you can't tell. This guy's got seven single daughters. Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. He gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So this is the formation of the man Moses, which doesn't seem to get off to a very good start. He's uh, been handed the world on a platter. He's grown up in Pharaoh's uh, household. But he clearly has a very strong sense of uh, justice and righteousness, which is really great. Except he also has a terrible temper, which will be manifested time and time again throughout his entire ministry. So here's one thing I want to say about this, that when you become a Christian, if you have a bad temper, you're probably going to have a bad temper when you're a Christian. Uh, it doesn't mean that God's not going to work on it because he certainly does work on it with, uh, with Moses. Uh, but this is Romans 7 coming to play where those character flaws, even if they're rooted in something positive, uh, God is going to begin to work on and you're really going to feel the struggle uh, in your life. When Lauren and I got married, uh, our, 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 some of our counseling uh, was really good. And uh, one of the things that, and I, and I now do this, with, with my couples, where we wrote down th three things that we absolutely loved about our future wife or husband, and three things that if we could change about our wife and husband, what would we change? 
Now, really, who cares about what we like about them? You know, that, that's a given. That's probably understood. But when we talked about the things that we would want to change in one another, the person doing the counseling said, now here are three things that could happen. They could get better. They could stay the same. Or it could get worse. And it's likely to be the latter two. Good luck. Right? That was kind of the word for us. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's kind of true, isn't it? Um, that, that those things that we bring into uh, a marital relationship, uh, that, um, that marriage is a sanctifying agent. That, because the th- and the other thing, too, is that the three things that your future spouse probably doesn't necessarily like about you are, are not things that really, until you got married, made any difference whatsoever. So if you're really messy... And you have roommates, you, you shut the room of your, you shut the door of your bedroom, right? But then when you have to live with the person in the same bedroom, that, that, that takes on a, now all of a sudden it has implications. And in the same way, most of those things that we struggle with, those things that we would say are our character flaws, when it's just us, we can kind of hide those in our hearts and we can justify those when they, when they fall out. Um, I'm sure Moses was justifying in his mind why it was okay to kill the Egyptian. Uh, But then when we enter into a relationship with God, that changes. Uh, That changes. And and it seems to me that maybe Moses is forgetting God in this because he he runs away, not because he's offended God or that he's committed murder, uh, but, but because he's been caught. Right. So if you think that modern day politicians only apologize when they're caught. It turns out this was true thousands and thousands of years ago as well. They're not really sorry until they get caught. And that's what happens with Moses. And so remember, Moses is a murderer. And yet God doesn't say, you know what? I'm going to find a better candidate. No, Moses is God's man. And God is raising up Moses and training him to be God's man. Now, one of the neat things about Exodus that we find is that Moses' life is divided up by 40-year increments. He dies at 120. The first 40 are spent here, right, in, in, in what we're talking about. And then the next 40... Um, in, um, because he's 40 when he gets married, 40 until the Exodus... And then the 40 years in the wilderness. So this is not a quick action, is it? It's not, you know, as long as the Ten Commandments is, you don't get the sense that this is actually a very long process by which Moses begins to lead uh, his people out of, uh, of Egypt. And these, these years that he spends uh, in, um, out in Midian uh, with Jethro and his uh, daughters... Um, is, um, is time that Moses is being prepared to lead his people out into the wilderness. So this is almost an 80-year project before you actually get to the place where they are led into the wilderness. So all of this time, Moses is being shaped into the leader God called him to be. And the real training didn't happen back in Pharaoh's palaces, The real training happened in Moses' heart. 
I've already mentioned he has an impulsive temper. But what we see, and I think this is an important point, if Pharaoh could not destroy them in his flesh, neither could Moses deliver them. Do you understand that? So just as Pharaoh was incapable of destroying the Israelites, so Moses is incapable of delivering them. Apart from who? God. God. In himself, Moses was incapable. And he knew this. Later on, we'll see him saying, who am I to do this? Who am I to lead your people out? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? And God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now, we all suffer from the same spiritual amnesia that Moses does. And think about it. Well, God, yes, you made sure I didn't die. You made sure that I was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. You made sure that I was, uh, spent my early years with my own mother. You, you raised me in, uh, in uh, Pharaoh's palace. Uh, you, you delivered me from, my, uh, you know, from uh, not just out of murder and out of Egypt individually, but you also gave me a wife, Zipporah, and we have this family now, and, and I'm very happy dwelling here. Uh, you forget all that, don't you? You, you forget your own spiritual autobiography. That the God who has brought you to the place that you're at right now is the same God who's going to take you where he wants you to go. He's not going to leave you or forsake you now. He's going to continue to go before you. And the weapons that Moses is to employ and that we're to employ are spiritual weapons, not carnal weapons. So he's not saying, hey, uh, and I'm not, I don't mean anything by the contemporary issues of the day, but you notice that he's, he's not saying, hey, Moses, I want you to inter interface with the political dynamics in Israel. He doesn't say that. He says very much what the epistle to, of Jude says, contend for the faith. Do what I'm asking you to do. Your call is to be faithful. And all you do is sit back and watch. And that required a lot of faith, especially the plagues. Can you imagine going to somebody and saying, I know this sounds crazy, but we're about to get overrun with frogs. It's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And everybody would think, you are crazy. Moses, Moses, and, and Moses doesn't call Ed's pet world and say, hey, I need about a million frogs. Just in case, I need a backup plan if God doesn't come through. But in fact, God does that. You know, the snake swallowing up the other snake um, and all the other plagues that happened. Uh, and even the great uh, example of faith on that night of the Passover when the angel of death would take the eldest uh, male child from each and every single family unless what? The blood over the lentil, right, the door, the blood over the door. And how, how much faith did that require? To, to, as you heard the screams and the cries around you in the night, there you are huddled with your family, supposed to be enjoying a meal, and, and all of this kind of stuff is happening. All you could do is put your faith in God that his promise was real, that as long as the blood of the lamb was over top of the door, then you would be spared. 
And so the real question that Moses had to grapple with and that you and I have to grapple with is God with me? Is God with me? Moses was being trained in his need to know God, to trust and obey him. And that's the great need of, of us, for us, to know God. Because most of us don't. I mean, I think we know something about God, uh, but to really know him to the, to the extent that our lives are so shaped and transformed as we know who he is and who he is for us and what our lives look in him. I know that for my daily life, I, I'm a, I, I certainly believe in the Lord Jesus, but it's hard not to look at my life sometimes and to think that I'm a functional atheist. That I live my life as if God doesn't exist or that I work as if it depended on me, but pray as if it depended upon God. Now, that doesn't mean that we sit back and we just say, well, I'm not going to work. Um, uh, one of our favorite Bible verses in our family is from 2 Thessalonians. If you don't work, you don't eat. Um, but uh, th that's not what Exodus is telling us here. But what it is, is that do we ultimately understand who we are in God and do we know him? Do we know God in the way that he's manifesting himself here in Exodus? Do we know the great links that he will go to in order to rescue us and use us? Do we understand his perfect control? Do we understand his perfect faithfulness? And do we understand his ability to perfectly train us to do that which he's called us to do? Okay, Exodus 2. Questions, comments, concerns? A little more awkward silence until somebody wants to say something. I always worry when y'all don't say anything. Uh, not for my own validation, but for... Um, I don't want you to feel foolish asking a question because there's no such thing, and this is probably a really good place to ask a question. Okay, so next week we'll go to... Uh, Exodus 3, and uh, as I said, we're doing this in 12 parts, so we're going to start picking up the pace a little bit, and, um, and I'll give you a heads up, but, but next, um, next week we're going to do, uh, uh, may, well, maybe 3 through 5, we'll see. Okay, all right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that these things are written down uh, so that we might learn something of you today. But Lord, more than just learn, we pray that we would experience who you are in Exodus in our own lives. And Lord, we admit that it's not because you're far from us, but because we block off our hearts and we're fearful that, um, that maybe we do need to take care of ourselves. But Lord, that you would bring us to a place where we really do know you and that we're able to cast our lives upon you and to know who you are as the God who saves in Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.